Hi, I'm Margie Haber. I've been an acting coach for 30 years, helping actors find their personal power and learn to create. Let's face it, all of us need to let go of control, get rid of the straitjacket we call our comfort zone, and remove the walls that prevent us from being vulnerable. It's all about hope. So let's begin this journey together and give ourselves permission to fuck your comfort zone. This is a great day for me because I get the opportunity to talk to a guy who I haven't seen in a long time, who was my student and I adore. His name is Alex Rich. I'm just going to give everybody a little bit about you because just in case they don't know you or they do know you and they want to know more. So Alex was nominated for a 2019 Critics' Choice Award for Best Supporting Actor for his performance alongside Antonio Banderas. (laughs) which was incredible, by the way, in his limited series, Genius Picasso, which was executive produced by Ron Howard, not too shabby, and Brian Grazer. (laughs) Prior to Genius, Alex played a supporting lead role in the Lionsgate digital feature film, The Honor List, directed by my friend, by the way, Alyssa Down, and began his career in the second season of HBO's True Detective. He's also recognized for his reoccurring role on the critically acclaimed Netflix comedy series Glow, where he played this dim-witted but lovable butler, Florian, and currently stars alongside Steve Carell, not too shabby either, in his new series, The Patient. Woo! I got that all all right. right. That was a mouthful. I'm very proud of myself to get all that out. Yeah, very workforce bio, work-focused bio. (laughs) Wonderful stuff. So let me just start with, in the very beginning, with, you know, when you grew up, I I was very impressed because you're one of those smart people who should have been a doctor, a doctor, because you went to Stanford, you speak Mandarin and French and Spanish. I'm lucky I speak English. Uh, What the (laughs) heck? What the hell, man? Well, tell me about your beginnings. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I had, I wrote all of my college acceptance essays about how I was going to be a doctor. I had this whole, <laughs> of course. I had this whole plan to be in Doctors Without Borders, um, which I nice. wrote. I like travel and you know spoke languages, but I got to school and kind of. So there were tables of prospective majors run by people who were advocates for those majors, and I decided at that point that those might not have been my, my people. <laughs> So I never even took a, a hum bio class, which is what we call the the pre. And then I met lovely people afterwards who are uh, hum bio majors. Right. But at the time, They're not bad people. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I think it was just like maybe the two there. I was like, oh no, for four years. <laughs> but uh, I don't even remember who they are, and I'm sure they actually were lovely. But I never took a class. So where you grew? Where did you grow up? In Florida, in Naples. Oh, I didn't know that. Me too. Yeah. I knew oh, that. Part of Florida. Oh, you knew that? Naples. You know more about me. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. It was and, a very specific place to be from. I, I fully enjoyed it. Yeah. What was your childhood like? I mean, was it um challenging? Was it a happy childhood? Uh, What's it? I had a great childhood. I mean, I come from the loveliest family. So I'm one of four kids. Um, and Naples was a lovely place to grow up. I moved there when I was six. So yeah. Um, it really was like the place that I that I grew up in. And it's quiet. You know, I think there's more retirement homes than golf courses. <laughs> retirement homes and golf courses than schools. So um, it made it nice for a young kid because we could kind of run around the streets and 
have a lifestyle that I think people are kind of scared of letting their kids have today. <laughs> yeah. I, I grew up in Bay Harbor Island, which is in Miami Beach, and that was the same concept. I was 10. It's a whole different world. So after your childhood, we're, we're going to mush forward. Yeah, let's First do of it. All, I'm, I'm a little bit curious how anyone could have no four languages and why. What, what made you learn those languages? Well, so the school that I went to in Florida made everyone, all students learn French starting from when we got there. And then when you got to middle school, you could switch out of French and you could do something else. But I, I stayed with French. So by the time I graduated high school, I had studied French for 12 years. So I was wow. pretty good at, at that one. Um, and then growing up in Florida, as you know, Spanish is kind of <laughs> just oh. all around you at all times. And so I began to pick up bits and pieces, but then I spent a summer learning it although I never really took class, but my, my brother married a Chilean woman. So we have lots of Spanish in the oh. family. So we've got like that whole side oh. is, is Spanish speaking. And, uh, I've spent time in Europe. We shot genius in Europe. So I was able to learn more there and there's just been lots of opportunity, especially living in LA to yeah. practice and develop. And it, with French as a, as a base, it was, easier to to pivot. And then when I got to Stanford, because I no longer was going to be a doctor, I wanted to speak a new language. And I went to the language center and I asked this like kind of, well, I won't, I won't tell you exactly what she said because I don't want to, you know, swear on your podcast. But, oh, you can swear. I okay. you know, fuck your comfort zone. Yeah. <laughs> she said, so this, this, this woman, I asked her, you know, should I take Arabic? Should I continue with Spanish and like really learn and she said, if you don't take Mandarin, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> and so I started a Mandarin. And then when I had to declare, it was the only class that I had taken consistently. So I was like halfway through the language requirement. And so I majored wow. in Mandarin. Can you say, uh, I love you, Margie, in, in Mandarin? Well, I need Margie. <laughs> Ooh, that's adorable. Nice. <laughs> All right. So. Tell me, uh, that's the three. It's amazing. Well, you know, it's fantastic that you have that opportunity because when you go all over the world, at least you can speak some of those people's language. So tell me about how you started acting. I mean, how'd you get all into it? Because you obviously yeah, so weren't going to be a doctor. I wasn't going to be a doctor anymore, although my parents love to ask me if I would like to now. <laughs> they've, kind of they've kind of abandoned that. Now it's, you know, <laughs> for a while when I started acting, it was, are you sure you don't want to go to business school? Um, yeah. But... I uh, was very interested in music growing up. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it from a career perspective until I got to school. And I spent a summer, I left uh, Stanford early. I graduated early and I had come down for a summer and did internships in LA at, it was actually, it was crazy. The same summer I was interning at Universal Music Group on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and at NBC and TV Music on Tuesday, Thursday. Because there was a delay in my conversations. So I got the NBC one. I applied for the Universal one, got the NBC one, then got the Universal one and asked NBC if I could split days. And they said wow. yes. Wow. So I was driving back and forth. What kind of music? What kind of music? So what I would do with, well, at Universal, I was working in A&R. And then at NBC, I was in TV music licensing. Um, so... The music that I was playing, though, I had a couple different projects. There was 
you know, more of a, of a pop project, you know, where you work with the producer and you do the whole thing where, you know, you, you've got the pop, the pop songs. And then I formed a band to have a little bit more control, (laughs) you know, because then I could write the songs, I could book all the shows and I could do everything. And that is unique in a creative industry. And I think something that was hard for me when I pivoted into acting, you know, and how did you pivot into acting? How did that happen? So I had a voice issue, which made it so that I, my voice, I had a, it's paresis in my right vocal cord, which has since kind of corrected itself, but, uh, it made it so that that career wasn't going to work. (laughs) Yeah. And so I had to find something that still felt like something I could be passionate about, but, uh, wasn't music. And so I took the elements of storytelling and then found the new outlet in, in acting. And how did, and how did you uh, get started with the whole process of auditioning and. Um, (laughs) so this no longer is a thing, but I bought, I was like right at the cusp of, of things changing. And I, so I bought clear envelopes. Do you remember those? The clear envelopes put yes. my headshots and then in my, and my resume on the back and a cover letter and I cold submitted and I got my first agent. Fabulous. That's the way to do it. Yeah. I this mean, was it's 2014. A... Wow. Yeah. yeah. So then you, what, then you uh, auditioned. I know one of your first auditions was true De- detective, correct? Well, that was my first booking. <laughs> first booking, <laughs> which is very different than auditioning. <laughs> yeah. We, exactly. we all know that there's a, a big difference between those two concepts. It takes a while, doesn't it? Well, I mean, I think it should. I think it's an art form and people should learn how to do it before they're, you know. <laughs> when did you take my class? When did you take my class? It was about then, because I studied with Eden um, and then with you. Yeah, about that, 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 that time. Yeah. So you, so do you remember the, uh, the, the audition? I mean, uh, do you remember it at all? The True Detective audition? and Oh, yeah. And- oh, I remember. I Tell mean, me about it. I think it's like the first. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it was raining that day. And I remember I went in the room and did, you know, did my piece. I think it's, it's, we were in the room, which doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went in and I, and I remember, you know, they they said like, okay, I, I put my bag down and they're like, okay, are you, are you ready? And I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. And then I, I did the audition and we had been sitting out in, in the rain for a little bit. Like there, it was kind of covered, but it was still kind of like an outdoor seating area and it was lovely. It's a lovely place. But, um, I called my manager at the time immediately afterwards. And I was like, I want, can I go, I want to go back. I want to go back and do it again. I, I think, you know, I only read it once and really, yeah, in the room, and I was like, "Well, I completely like blew that to shreds, and I'm never going to be welcome back there ever again." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I booked it. <laughs> That's why what's interesting to me is you know actors judge so much about how they do in the room, and then afterwards their critical parent uh, comes out and says, oh, "I did like I I sucked, and I'll never do it again." And before you come in, the fearful child. Uh, enters with you and then the critical parent seems to be one that you leave with but you can't ever judge and what's fascinating to me is the whole auditioning process which i always feel is unfortunate because auditioning means impressing 
And when you audition, you're putting yourself in a position of, I, I hope I book. If I don't book, I'm not worthy. And I always say that that's, that's, the, that's the trap of the actor. Well, there are so many things like I think that that is that's that's great. There are so many things that are kind of subsets of that of that concept. I think often, you know, in, in speaking about control and we want the audition to feel like it went well, there's, I guess, like the messy energy of it all, which you talk about often. People don't necessarily know what that energy is. They just see that there's an energy to the performance. And I think that that can be really enticing to watch. And I think as actors, we might know that that mess was nerves or yeah. or judgment of missing a line or whatever. But when people are watching it, they they project their own interpretation of what's happening. And they might be they might think, oh, he was he was flustered by that random thing. But that makes sense because of this. Right. And, you and know what? You it's know, the very human. Yeah, it's very human, isn't it? Don't, um, and after all, I always say to people, they're looking, they're not looking for actors to be perfect. They're looking for human beings to be imperfect because that's what we are. And they don't know what you're thinking. You could be thinking, oh, shit, I got to go poop. They have no idea what it is. Right. But but because you're so human, you're so full of life that it's not doesn't look like a robot walking in and doing it perfectly. I 100 percent agree. So how was the glow? Talk about glow. That was in 2017. Because yeah. I, I, I was I was reading about it. I did some research on you. God knows I have to do research. But it was talking <laughs> about, you know, that uh, this character was experiencing living the life of a gay. You were experiencing living the life of a gay guy in the 80s who had AIDS. That's how he ends up dying. And that you were called the gay icon. Who knew? Oh, so is this uh, the way yeah. it started out? It didn't start out like that, right? It did not start out like that. No, I auditioned for okay so i put myself on tape for chris lowell's part in glow actually i in like my bathroom I, all i'd say 99.9 percent .9 of the acting that i've done has been in like basements like the one i'm in now and bathrooms <laughs> no it's like <laughs> that's the way you do it yeah with with maybe if you have lights if you're lucky <laughs> but um so I was in at that point in my apartment in the bathroom and I taped for Chris Lowell's part and we sent it off and uh, didn't hear anything. And then I got called in for Florian, which I ended up booking. And I, it wasn't, he wasn't, it wasn't clear what his sexuality was or what the dynamic was going to be like with him and, and Chris Lowell, who ended up being, you know, my, my <laughs> partner in that. Uh, and as the series developed, you know, that became more and more clear, but it's the eighties. So it reflected how gay men would have been living, you know, at that, at that time. And yeah. what's interesting is, so we did season one and I was in three episodes of that season. And then when season two came around the same week that they started filming season two, I left for genius. So, oh, wow. So. I also wasn't sick in, until I wasn't available. <laughs> right. Get it. Get it. Get I mean, it. I'm not, well, I'm not sure. Actually, I guess I can't, I can't speak to that. I'm not sure. But uh, I think we had, a. I think we had a different thing that could have happened had I, yeah. had I not been in Europe and unavailable uh, for that show. And I'm so grateful to the writers for finding such a poetic way to deal with my absence and being so kind Wonderful. as to bring me in for the first episode. Cause I wasn't supposed to start then I was supposed to start uh, of season two. 
later in the season, but I, you know, had to, I was able to go do genius. And so I was, I found out a lot of what happened with Florian with everyone else. Yeah. But you know, what's interesting for me, it's because 1980s, I I remember it vividly. Uh, I lost a lot of friends during that time. And I remember being at the quilt ceremony because at that time they had, for those people that don't know, because you're, you're too young, but there was this huge quilt of all the people that passed from AIDS. And I remember sitting in the stadium. I don't remember whether it was at the forum or, or wherever it was, I think maybe the forum. And it just covered the entire stadium, this, this, oh. this, this quilt. It was one of the most the saddest things. And in my book, you know, fuck your comfort zone. I talk about how you're only as sick as your secrets. Right. And being I I'm gay and being that I had to live with that for I didn't tell anybody in the 70s. It was a different time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having to unfortunately, in one way, you, you didn't have the opportunity to really portray what this man went through, uh, right. which would have been a fascinating thing to do. But had you had any thoughts about what what he was like before it went through that direction? Oh, yeah. I mean, I. So much was about discovery, I think, for these two characters. And so much was that they weren't for, I mean, I'm talking about Chris, or uh, Chris Lowell's character yeah. and mine. Yeah. Bash Florian. Yeah. Uh, I think that the writers did such a beautiful job of keeping things kind of nondescript. Yeah. Because it would have been that way. I mean, I think it's obvious to anybody watching in, in 2018, you know, what's right. going on, but it wouldn't have been for them. And I think, or, well, I think that what they did with Florian and kind of the, the the missing person of it all, like Glow really, as it should, centers around the stories of the women who are wrestling. And I think that that yeah. is what that show should, should be. And I yeah. think to be able to do so much with so little time and without, you know, half of that equation in describing how much shame there was yes, in exactly and being somebody who was dying of this unknown disease that was attributed to like a gay plague and then yeah. for having having him go away and no one's going to claim the body sorry there's so many spoilers people haven't yeah. seen no it's true it's very true there it's very hard let me ask you a question about this uh you're as an actor creating the life you know i don't use the word prepping i use the word creating uh so your thoughts were that nobody knows i'm gay well as <laughs> I'll be honest, as the actor, we weren't sure. We had feelings about what they were suggesting, but it got to be more obvious as the episodes went on. Yeah. Because when you auditioned, you only have the first. But as you were doing it, as you were shooting it, and as you were shooting it, didn't it? It it journeyed for you, correct? Yes. Yeah. 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 Just like like it would have for him. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think that that's what I find fascinating about it, that particular um, life you were living, is that you, you start out. And this happens a lot of times with my students. They'll start out auditioning for something and then the character changes. And then all of a sudden the character, oh, I'm pregnant. All of a sudden this, Whoa. oh, I have one of my students. I, I remember my student uh, um, a long time ago. Um, um, she, she's, she had this, she was in this series, Mistresses, Rochelle Eights. She's beautiful. And I worked with her every single week for four years on this show. And then after the second year, she's, oh, guess what? The script's changed. I'm having a nervous breakdown. 
<laughs> all of a sudden, I didn't know I was I had anxiety, and all of a sudden, anxiety right. happens. So it does. It's well, and you, you have to be open to it. But I mean, if you think about people's real lives, like yeah. Selena Gomez has been such a champion of 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 similar kind of scenarios where she was dealing with with mental health and didn't realize that she was bipolar, and yeah. so like a lot of the behavior that she had been experiencing and the thought processes you know, weren't made clear until what would have been a later episode where now it's like, okay, like the team saw the through line that I didn't. And I think that that very much yeah. is one of the joys of of TV in particular is that it follows real life where discoveries are happening real time. Sometimes when you're walking to set to do a, a scene that you were, that was different until you got to set that day. Yeah, it's very interesting. And- very interesting. All right. I want to get to my favorite because it is my favorite. And I was just blown away. I remember watching you. I'm going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's so good. Oh. Tell me, uh, let's talk about Picasso Genius. It's what an okay. amazing life to create. Uh, the fact I'll that you were nominated you. for Critics' Choice Award is just because you were really quite brilliant in it. You were wonderful in it. And I, I can only speak from my profession because I know it. I want to hear all about the audition, what it was like working with Antonio Banderas. <laughs> I'd like to hear all about it. Let's uh, let's uh, share this with my audience. Tell me about yeah. it. Well, I will say to date, the only jobs that I've booked auditioning in the room are that are not from self tape are True Detective and The Honor List. Everything else I've gotten from self tapes. Wow. So, uh, genius. Can we cut for that? Let me ask you a question about that because uh, before you go there. What makes your self-tape successful? What do you think it made, made it successful? Oh, wow. Um, one, I'm not sure if that's the right thing to take from that. I think I do a lot of them. So, you know, there is a numbers game element. But I think, okay, okay I let me let me kind of rephrase that a little bit. I think that one of the things that's, that I love the most about self-tapes versus in-the-room audition. I think in-room auditions are fantastic for theater because it's like the job. You know, like you go on stage, you do it, you don't know what's going to happen. I think that self-tapes give you the opportunity to to be comfortable and that's a lot more like set often. You know, you get multiple takes, you get to kind of yeah. like try different directions and assess and when I'm doing self-tapes, choosing your reader is really important. I agree. Uh, if you have the option, you know, like yeah. we don't often, but that's why they do chemistry reads for projects because they want to make sure that the person you're acting with, you have chemistry with. So choosing the reader that kind of enriches the the script and the situation that you are are, are gifted with playing is important. I think uh, I, I like to... Read. So here's my general process. Okay, let me hear it. Then we'll get back to later. This is very interesting to me. Okay, I will. We're often given sides and potentially a script to accompany those sides. So I will read the sides once first, and then I want to read the whole script to kind of see if there's context that I that I missed. And then from there, I don't like to spend time with the lines until I'm filming because the, the, the joy of self taping is that you have the time and the flexibility to do it multiple times. Should your reader be generous enough with, with their time. Thank you. And 
I so what I would do though, because I do believe that an actor prepares, but I think the the correct kind of preparation is is key. And so thinking about the situations, about the emotions, about let's say you have to do an accent, that was a great gift that that Picasso gave me because I really had the ability to dive into an accent in a way that I didn't have before that. And that taught me a lot about how to how to do that. But I think that I like to try it cold with enough time to revisit it if there's something missing. So so agree. So agree with this, by the way. So agree. Yeah. Because what I talk about my students is is don't worry about lines right away. That's the that you don't want to you don't want to be controlled by them. You want to like live in it and also then do you improv it before and cut it? Because I do a lot of improv and cut it and allow yourself to live in it previously. I I think I mean you should obviously always know what you're walking into and have a moment before you start the the so that you have some emotion because those first five seconds, you know. Now that it's all self-tapes, casting can be like something we don't, there's a lot of people, you know, this isn't our guy. Great. We'll do it for the next one. But I think that if I feel stuck with that first line, like if it feels like it's getting caught, then I would improv into it. I also think that there are, each script requires a different entry point. You know, there are some that just sit really naturally and like the lines will even be memorized in my first take. Like, you know, just because it makes sense to me the way this person converses and some take more effort, which is why I like to do them with enough time to redo them should I not be happy with what comes out on camera. And I think operating from that place of not being pressured to nail it gives me creative freedom to like also enjoy the process because there's a life outside of these auditions. And I used to destroy myself stressing over getting the perfect take. And that's not a great place to operate from. And I think classes often actors, me included, have struggled with a lot of the same things because the worst thing you can do is have the pressure to please teach, which is the same as like getting the right take. No one wants to see that. And, you know, you can smell that a mile away that the concern isn't what thoughts am I having, but what thoughts do they want me to have? And that yeah. I think huge issue. Well, it's all about um, the wanting to impress, which gets you in your way. Versus, oh, I have an opportunity. I always tell my people that I work with all the time because I'm. We're doing actually have a self tape product coming out in in the um, winter, and so I'm very very big on self taping. I love self taping if it's done in a creative way, not in a technical way. And when right. people get stuck in, oh, I got to worry about my lighting, I got to worry about my set, I got to do everything really tight and everything that, they they miss out on the opportunity of living in the space, really learning how to create and enjoy the process of it. And then you let it go. And I also tell people, after you've finished it, leave it and then go right. back later and look at it. Otherwise you're screwed keeping- Oh, absolutely. Up. Cause you get in the weeds on like, oh, but I didn't blink at that point that yeah. I wanted to, which meant to me that I was going to yeah. be confused. But I also think, and this came from you, the 30 day self tape challenge, Yeah. right? That was from your yeah. class. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, when I'm, when people ask if they do, you know, what advice do I have for new people? I tell them to self tape as much as they can because it offers a couple different things one you have a breadth of work at the end that you can use to get representation you know you are showing them i think that 
a, a, a bevy of self tapes showing different kinds of things that you can do. Or if you know where you fit, you know, if you're self-aware enough to know like what, what you might be able to do in the market, which makes it sound like it's not creative, but I think that there's this, okay, that's a separate tangent, but I think that having, <laughs> having a doing self tapes to the point where you start to identify one, what you like and two, what your style is, because there's a hundred actors, maybe a thousand who read for the same part, like making the choices that feel like the writer's intent are important, but your personal style is infinitely more so. Yeah. Bring yourself into it. Okay. Let's get back to my, my most important thing before time comes up is tell me about the, the, you were in for the audition for Picasso. No. So you I self-taped. Self-taped it. You self-taped it. Okay. Tell me about your self-tape with that. Yeah. So I self-taped. So I was sent, I think the script was, it was like 15, 18 pages in an accent. And Whoa. it might not, it was, I know it was four scenes and obviously, you know, some things are blacked out, but it ended up being a very long tape. Uh, and it was in an accent, which was not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we sent, I sent it to my manager and he had actually abbreviated the timeline. Like, I guess that, in the time from when he's I'm working with someone else now, but at at the time uh, he had gotten like from when he sent the original appointment, they then gave us an extension, but that I wasn't aware of. So I got to do that. I I did the tape very quickly, like cold read to sent in like a few hours. Uh, And then I was able to revisit one of the scenes that we wanted to give another go at. And I didn't hear anything for a month. And then it was very quick. (laughs) It was a call on a Monday saying that on the Wednesday, I was going to be FaceTiming with the showrunner, Ken Biller. And then on the call with him, I remember him saying, I want you to get this part. And you have to go into Fox later today to (sighs) basically do what was the test. Read for these, you know, these, these, the execs. and." Uh, take, make sure you take the time that you need to get the tape that will get, you know, that you feel good about. So I had never Ooh. been spoken to that way. Ooh, how nerve wracking. <laughs> well, how, but, but, you know, infinitely net less nerve wracking than not having his support. Of course. of course. So, and I was the only person in the room, you know, like there was no one else oh. waiting. Wow. I think I was the only person who tested, wow. if I remember correctly. And then it was the around this. Wow. So many of my jobs I booked around Thanksgiving. I booked the patient around Thanksgiving wow. and I booked genius. I left that night. It was a Wednesday, which is also my dad's birthday is the 23rd tomorrow or wow. yeah, tomorrow. So it's always, so I flew home with their permission, not knowing if I was going to have to come back in and do another read. And then I got the okay to go home on the flight that I had booked. And I got to go through the process of hearing these little tidbits through the weekend with my parents, which was wow. really, really nice. Because what, what is it for people who don't understand? What is it? What's the screen test? How, what was the screen test for you? Tell us so, about the screen test real quickly. Well, for me, it was just reading in the room with, with Fox Casting and, and oh. with Anna Culp, who's lovely. Oh. Well, there He's you go. Decide, but, so uh, tell me about, well, let me quickly ask you about this working with Antonio, because I know that 
I, I, I think it's very fascinating for, you get the job, obviously, it's fantastic, congratulations. And then you you get a chance to work with somebody and live a, a younger version of, an, of a guy who's well-known, Antonio, who really is a fantastic actor. And I assume you mirrored him, you watched him, you helped him. How did that go? So, uh, all of those things. One, I'll start with Antonio is truly lovely. Like, yeah. I mean, and I mean that as a person, but also as a, as a co-star, as a, as a co-creator. He never was gatekeeping, never felt competitive, was always collaborative, was always like, you know, it was right. kind of just like, a big like wing to step into and it was it was lovely uh i he is from the same town that picasso's from in spain so they're both from Malaga. so in the pursuit of picasso's accent you know that's as close as we're gonna get is antonio's accent when he speaks english is as close as it's gonna get you know except that that there was whatever periods in france and 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 such but Early on, I so I from when I finally heard that I booked it to when I left was like a week or a week and a half. Oof. And Antonio had been on the project, I think, for for some months now. You know, he was the he's the only guy you should you know yeah. have got part being from where he's from and you know the experiences that he had because he grew up with him. You know, around wow. Gossip's influence and. Uh, I had a lot of catching up to do because <laughs> most of what I knew about Picasso, I found out, you know, was about Antonio's version of the timeline, not yeah. young Picasso. But once I got into the weeds and I had these huge books that this guy, John Richardson wrote that are like, you know, they're, they're real Thick. textbook size, novel things, not novels, textbooks. So Nat Geo is so great. And our writing team was so great. Like, Ken and Rath and everybody and Noah, th- that every scene that was in the script, I could find in those books. Wow. So everything was true, at least wow. researched. And then there are some blanks that have to be filled in because we don't have all the conversations. But I could get the context for every scene that I was playing. And what I found partway through, because I was doing what Picasso was doing. You know, like no one knew who he was. I mean, and then right that time, yeah, yeah. By the end of it, I was able to step in more of my power as I had spent, you know, six months on set, kind of taking taking this this part on. So that was just lucky. <laughs> yeah. So how long did it? Do you were you on? About six months. Yeah. Wow, that's a long. So you obviously. I've, what was the biggest challenge, though, I mean, in, in this whole process for you? Well, I am so grateful that this particular part came to me as as early in my career as it did, because I think it threw almost everything that could be thrown at an actor. You know, there was yeah. an accent, there was a time period. I was playing a real person, and I was sharing that real person with a legend. And, wow. you know, we were traveling, so no you know i'm outside of my comfort zone which i actually think was a godsend because there were no distractions yeah i could work and uh the creative team was so incredible i think you know the biggest confidence was just getting over imposter syndrome (laughs) 
Well, I was going to ask you this thing because in my book, I talk about the five voices, um, the critical parent, the fearful child, the nurturing parent, the playful child, the, the adult. And I wanted to know how you squashed that critical parent, which must have come up a lot, and the fearful child. What was the way that you were able to put that in its pl- those voices in its place? I had a lot of help. Uh, you know, I knew that the network and the creatives were behind me. And I don't feel like that's always the case on sets. I've been very fortunate. That's always been the case for me on sets. But I know that some, you know, there can be a competitive energy. There can be a a director who isn't necessarily coming off as supportive. Um, so that made it easier. I also think that it was some of the, if I did have any insecurities, especially early on, I could use them, you know, like I think Picasso always had a very hard head and was very determined. And I feel that way often myself, you know, you kind of have to be, yeah. or, you know, this industry will do what it wants with you. (laughs) Yeah. Not that we don't have our moments. I mean, like, but I think one of the biggest challenges in the pursuit of this industry is figuring out how to navigate the, the, the mental struggles that are thrown your way. And so having a lovely group of people to be around was the biggest asset. And then also having such well-researched scripts and being able to really trust the team's creative prowess because the first season about Einstein was so beautiful yeah. that I knew going in that whatever they told me to do would be in line with my goals. You know, like I didn't feel like I had to do anyone else's job. I could just trust that if the DP was coming in, he was like, yo, like this is going to be sick. And it would be. And same with the director, same with the co- the costuming, same with makeup. Like they yeah. were at the top of their game. So it sounds like to me in, uh, in making closure of Picasso, I could talk for an hour without Picasso with you, but <laughs> closing it up, it sounds to me that you're, you know, we, when you have a support system that, and they are really good at what they do, then you can let go of control, which is what I talk about in my book, letting go of control. And now what you can do is create. And it seems like you love the creation so much and you believed in it so much and you created it with such joy that that squashes the critical parent. I talk about that. What squashes yeah. the critical parent, what squashes the fearful child is the playful child and the adult and the nurturing parent. So you you had the playful child, because you were creating like crazy. You had the adult where you had lots of information and your nurturing parent was, you know, I feel good about this for myself. I think that. Well, the other thing that I, I mean, all of that's true. The other thing that I want to add to that is that the pace at which we were moving left little time for second guessing. (laughs) (laughs) Jump in. Well, so because both. So Antonio's timeline had kind of a different cast because it was right. later in his life and we were staggering. So when, when Antonio's in his forties, I'm 17. So those are generally in a person's life, you know, your group changes. So we were shooting in tandem the whole time. So I was in almost every scene of the day because we had two, we had an A team and a B team. 
So, you know, if you've got 12 scenes a day, like you are just, you're like, okay. And there, I mean, and that's where trust comes in because yeah. I knew it was going to be, they wouldn't stop unless they were good, but I didn't have to obsess. That's right. And, and the, the, the concept is when the critical parent has a lot of noise in your voice, when you have too much time on your hands, <laughs> when you are creating all the time, it doesn't give it to you. So let me jump now because I have to jump okay. to the patient because I watched it uh, you know, recently and I'd seen it and I'm fascinated because you spent the most 99% of the time in the closet. <laughs> so right in the in this small little room, and I talk to my students, which is interesting to me, that many times I have my students sit in a dark little room when they are looking to go into an emotional space of fear and sadness and pain and what that's like. So my question to you is, A, did you have to audition? How did you audition for that? Because it's very fascinating to me. And two, the other senses that took over what that was experience was like. So again, I booked the patient <laughs> off a self-tape and I just sent the one and then uh, went to the table read. And, you know, by the table read, you have quote unquote booked it, but so many actors, you know, get recast in table reads. And that's also, that was very nerve wracking, you know, wow. very scary. And the, everyone was so lovely. Like, I don't know how I got so lucky with the creatives that I, that I have been yeah. um, able to work with, but. Uh, I remember Jeannie Bacharach, who's the casting director, and and Joe and Joel, and all these people came up, and and they were just so nice before we started reading that I already felt kind of similar to what I felt on on Genius. You know, I know I was going to wow. be uh, treated with with respect, and you know, as right. as a co creator, not you know a a piece to be right. you know in a, in a story. And I think that. That role in particular, in particular, playing Elias, um, really scared me. <laughs> yeah, Jesus was scary, very scary for so many reasons. But I, but Elias was scary in different reasons for different reasons. Uh, as an actor, there are lots of things that I I've learned to rely on that bring me a little bit of solace. You know, in Genius, I always knew that I could get lost in another person. And with Elias, a lot of the things that I would use to do that were taken from me, you know, because I couldn't I couldn't see. Right. I wasn't in the same room. I didn't have access to my body. I couldn't interact with my environment in the same way. You know, I can't, like, pick up a prop or, you, you know, I can't, like... I think a lot yeah. of what actors do is is distract themselves from the lines with the things that are around them, be them under other behavior. people. Or, behavior. Behavior. And my behavior was extremely limited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, often in a story, there are releases from, from tension, and our story had that as well. But I think because of the nature of this narrative, um, it always felt kind of like an emotional 11, even if I'm holding it back, there's, there's constant fear, you yeah. know? And I think there's, there are a million different faces that fear can take, but that was really challenging for me. 
And I think there are benefits to not being able to see or hear that made it because I was I would I was actually bound in there. You know, it wasn't just done in a studio. Uh, So they put you 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 were put in the situation. So you really experienced it. It was that because you were in the actual situation. And while you were in it, my question is, Georgie, my question is, you you can't hear, you can't see. What were the things that were going on in your mind as you lived in isolation and claustrophobia? I, it made some elements easier and some elements much more difficult. I, you know, you have to dissociate from what you know is real to what the character knows is real. You know, like I was watching something with, with Chris Hemsworth, with Chris Hemsworth where he pretends to walk off a thing using VR and like he can fall and he's like i knew it was real but i knew it was fake and i think a lot of actors yeah. you know deal with that and so i tried to we had this lovely like props master uh pineapple who i was like i want you to really go for it like i want you to really go tight on the because i was yeah. also supposed to be in a in a world of pain having been beaten before yeah. i read and yeah. i think that the there's the real environment would have been you know it's kind of like a boiler room almost like would have been hot i would have been sweating i would have broken ribs and can't really breathe and so to create that for you know episodes on end and then figure out the i think the the really difficult part on this was to figure out how hurt to be you know, like you're fighting with different elements of a survival instinct, right? So right. at what point, like how hurt do I have to be to not get out of this chair, right? And so, you're, you're bound, yeah. so you can't. But yeah. like, you know, it, a lot of that, it was very challenging for me just in preparation work. And then when you get on set, you have a, you have a conversation about it. And that's, but like when I was preparing, I, I was like, I could, there's so many different things that, so many different directions to go. And I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> well, it's a, it sounds like one of the one one of the things that was wonderful about this opportunity was you got to experience something that most people don't. You got to experience how to live in such discomfort, such pain, and still have the need to get out. I mean, to me, if you stay too much into the pain and too much into the into what's happening inside you, you forget what your whole purpose is, which is get me out, get me out. And anyway, I just want to say that it was really fun to to watch you do that stuff. I want to oh, I want to pivot to uh, uh, before we close. Uh, I found it interesting. You said something to me about that you because my book is about getting out of your comfort zone uh, by freeing yourself of success inhibiting stressors. Can you just talk quickly quickly about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a way so, to end here. Okay, yeah. So I, I think that there's, I, I have a lot of things to say about that. But okay, in the pandemic, for example, I we were all we were all given the opportunity to really break all of our routines and, and figure out what our life looks like without the normal distractions that keep us kind of just going. And I realized that I needed to make a a switch in my team. I realized that there were some things that I always wished I would do, but I wasn't doing like, like traveling and early on in the pandemic before I got COVID, 
that was not something to do. But when I got it, I just, you know, I, I took that opportunity because everything was remote to, to travel and experience things. And I think that the concept of constriction in all these different forms, and there's so many others, are extremely limiting to the creative ability. So when you stu- when you do identify the things that stress you out, and then you make kind of daily progress towards lessening their control over you, your creative life opens infinitely. So let's say that one of the th- one of the pressures for me was, you know, up until really genius, I was watching a lot of my friends who aren't actors who I went to school with thrive financially, and I was like going the opposite direction. And so enabling myself to create different business opportunities that would kind of solve that area of concern that I was getting down on myself about only helped to increase my creative freedom. And I think often there's this really disgusting kind of narrative for artists that you have to be tortured and only do this and do these things that make you feel like, you know, the brooding, I drink all day and, you know, just self-destructive, self-destructive behavior. And the opposite actually is the key, you know? So I'm going to end this with one sentence and I'd like you to just uh, tell me uh, getting out of your comfort zone, just what is the one sentence you could give actors after what you've gone through a short one sentence advice as they go forward in there and being healthy and being healthy. So I, I recently said this again, and I picked it up off a podcast. My phrase for that, that I'm currently really into is take action, take imperfect action, but holy hell, take action. Like, yeah. Take, I love it. Take action, take imperfect action, but just fucking take your action. Which is right. why I say, fuck your comfort zone. Thank you so much, darling. It was yeah, so good you, to spend this time with you. I love you. <laughs> and get back into class because I want to spend some more time with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, sounds good. I hope today's podcast inspires you to stay open, let go of control, be present, and above all, be kind to yourself. If you'd like to explore more of my philosophy in the studio, go to margiehaber.com. And if you want to purchase a copy of my book, Book Your Comfort Zone is available on Amazon. Stay tuned for our next episode.